Father God, there is so much that as followers of Jesus in this day and age, we are trying to process. There are so many voices shouting so much pain, anger, grief, sadness, especially in light of the, the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Aubrey. And it's tough to know, God, where are you? God, I pray that you would lead us, your people, in humble self-reflection. God, that you would lead us, to, to, that you would search our own souls, open our ears, give us the ability to love our neighbor as ourselves. And we know that as we reach out in love, God, that that is a demonstration of the good news that we proclaim. And that as the good news that we give with our mouths matches the lives we live toward our neighbor, God, your mission moves forward. And so we pray for the power of your Spirit to come in, speak to us, fill us, and lead us forward in gospel love and passion for all our neighbors. We love you. We praise you. All of this is for you. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen. And now I'd like to invite up my brother, uh, David Anastasi, to share the word with us. Good morning, everyone. My name is David. I am the Associate Pastor of Discipleship here at Trinity. Let me be yet another voice to welcome you uh, to our worship this morning. If you're new, a special welcome to you. It's a privilege to worship with you today. We are going through the book of Acts with a sermon series titled The Church in Motion. We're looking at the ways that the Holy Spirit worked in the lives of the early believers those Christians that were living and witnessing for Christ. And this isn't to suggest in any way, shape, or form that the Holy Spirit stopped working somewhere along the way. Believe me, he is as busy today as ever. Last week, Pastor Kirk taught through Acts chapter 6, and today we find ourselves in Acts chapter 8. That means we done skipped a chapter so we're going to have to do some work up front so that we don't have any confusion when we get to chapter 8. But before we do that, would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity to read and study your word. I thank you for the time you gave me this week to prepare this message. But Father, these cannot be my words. These need to be your words for your people carried by your Holy Spirit. Father, be in each and every word that I speak. Give me a posture of humility and submission to your word. Father, I am in no way above your word. I am under it. So, Father, protect, protect everybody under the power of this word from my sin. Father, carry this word to everybody's ears. Prepare the hearts of everybody. Hear these mighty truths that we're going to study in your word today. Thank you for all of this, Father, in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. All right, let's 
all get on the same page to start. So I want to start with a summary of Acts chapters 1 through 6. Resurrected Jesus teaches the disciples about the kingdom of God. He ascends into heaven. He sends the Holy Spirit to the disciples on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit fills the believers who were all in Jerusalem at the time. And this event causes a great commotion. Peter stands up in the midst of this commotion, delivers what you could call the first Christian sermon. And the sermon is all about Jesus Christ as Messiah, as the Savior. And he calls for repentant faith in him. And this leads to the conversion of thousands of Jews to Christianity on that day. These new believers, Luke tells us, were together all the time. They were sharing, sharing meals together, studying God's word together. They were sharing their assets with one another, really doing life together in the truest sense of those words. We read about some real opposition to the early church from the Jewish religious elite, which leads to the arrest of Peter and John. And we see some struggles as well from within the church. And yet throughout all of it, the word of God continues to go forth and Christ continues to grow his church. Chapter 6 ends with Stephen, a Christian who was full of grace and power, Luke tells us, being seized by the Jewish elite, framed, and essentially put on trial. Chapter 7, in its entirety, is Stephen's speech before the high priest, tracing through the Old Testament to show, again, that Jesus is the Messiah, the righteous one. And he too calls for repentant faith in Christ. And they kill him for it. Stephen pays for his Christianity with his life as the first Christian martyr. And if we didn't, didn't do that work up front, you would stop me right after the first sentence of chapter 8 with at least one question. So with all of that summary in mind, Let's get into chapter 8. And using chapter 8, I want to show us three truths about God which will lead to one truth about our situation. Acts chapter 8, let's start with verses 1 through 8. And Saul approved of his execution. Again, this is the execution of Stephen that we just spoke about. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, Pastor Kirk will get into much more detail about Saul Next week, this is Paul, writer of roughly half the New Testament. He's standing there at the scene of Stephen's murder, approving of it. And then we read that he's ravaging the church. So clearly, there is a huge transformation that occurs in the life of Saul that we will hear about next week. But let's back up a little bit. Let's take a wide-angle lens look for a second. The Holy Spirit is moving with great intensity in Jerusalem. Christian, uh, great persecution arises. Christian suffering. Saul is dragging men and women out of their homes and putting them in prison. 
for being and bearing witness to Christ. And this brings us to truth number one. God is sovereign over every situation. Does anybody remember the words of Jesus to his disciples right before his ascension? Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus tells his disciples, And you will receive great power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. You see, even persecution is subject to the will and the mission of God. These disciples certainly witnessed in Jerusalem. But look at how God uses this persecution. Where did the Christians disperse to? And is this so God that Jesus tells them in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 where they're going to go? And in Acts chapter 8 verse 1, this is exactly where they go. The next two places on Jesus' list. Judea and Samaria. Judea, the large area surrounding Jerusalem, which I did my best to point to with that orange arrow on the screen. And Samaria, the territory to the north of Judea. God used this persecution for good, right? What the enemy meant for evil, God always uses for good. He is spreading the Christians in all directions And they're bringing with them the message of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm certainly not suggesting that we are being persecuted right now. But do we think for one second that God can't use this entire COVID crisis for his good? Millions and millions of people are online now hearing the word of God for the very first time. Churches have flooded the internet with the news, the good news of Jesus Christ. See, those people may never have come to church, so Jesus brought the church to them. God brought the church to them online. And this is the power and providence of our God. The effect of the persecution then was to actually strengthen the church. It literally facilitated the spread of the gospel. Do we believe that God can and will do the same thing today in us and through us? Of course he will. God can and will use horizontal tragedy for vertical triumph. God can and will use earthly tragedy for heavenly triumph always. Yes, Trinity, truth number one, God is sovereign over every situation. Let's continue in verse four. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Here's truth number two. God is sovereign over every person. Did you catch that in verse 4? Those who were scattered about went preaching. Now this is not preaching as, as potentially I am doing to you now. The, the word there is the verb tense of the Greek word euangelion, which translates much better to evangelize. 
So these Christians were scattered about telling everybody about the good news of Jesus. God didn't just use the persecution to scatter his children. His children were scattered with a mission. God used that persecution to turn the believers into an army of evangelists, of gospel spreaders. They were not just gospel hearers, they were gospel spreaders. And we see this missional mindset in a man named Philip who went to Samaria. Who is Philip? Well, I'm glad you asked. We met Philip last week in Acts chapter 6. At that time, the new church was growing and they ran into a problem. The widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of provision. So the apostles gathered everybody together and had them pick out seven men to appoint to that duty of serving the widows. This would enable the apostles to continue to preach and teach the word of God and the community to be served. And Philip was one of those seven chosen to serve. Now again, I, I want to make sure that we don't miss this. A problem comes up in the early church. God uses that problem to raise up Philip as a servant leader. Persecution comes upon the church, and God uses that situation to send out Philip now as a gospel spreader to Samaria. God working in Philip and God working through Philip. Now, I promise you, I don't know much, but here is one thing I do know. God wants to use you to accomplish his mission. Yes, you. You're not some accident. You are not some afterthought. You are not the result of some heavenly spiritual auto draft like fantasy football. God intentionally chose you, which means there are no bench warmers on God's team. He wants to work in you and work through you for your good and his glory. That's what he does. That's how he does it. Nothing's changed. Don't sit on the sidelines another day just doing church. There is no such thing. God made you and I to be the church. He gifted you in specific ways. He gifted me in specific ways. Maybe he gifted you to teach. Maybe he gifted you to lead a small group and disciple, disciple others in a small group setting. Maybe he gifted you with the gift of hospitality, of prayer, of resources. And here is a truth within a truth. This one's free. God does not call the equipped. God equips who he calls. God does not call the equipped. He equips those who he calls. If he's called you, you've been equipped. And he equips you and I to be on mission, a church body in motion. Yes, Trinity, God is sovereign over every single situation and he is sovereign over every single person. Truth number three, God wants all people to hear the gospel and he works history to that end. First of all, Philip went to Samaria. Now, as many of you know, the Jews and the Samaritans hated one another and have for a thousand years. And this all goes back to the division of the 12 tribes, a split, where 10 went to northern Israel and 2, Judah and Benjamin, stayed in southern Israel. And eventually the northern tribes were conquered by the Assyrians. And at that time, those northern tribes began to intermarry with the Assyrians, to which the southern tribes labeled them 
as half-breeds and dogs. This is also why the parable of the Good Samaritan was so revolting to the Jewish leaders who heard it. And this is one of the crown jewels of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel, the true gospel, shreds political, economic, cultural, and racial barriers. Forget the fact for a second that Jesus was not a white European. Jesus Christ did not come to change people's earthly ethnicity. He came to change people's eternal destiny. And what are we told of heaven? The book of Revelation tells us many times heaven is full of every tribe, people from every nation, every tongue. When Jesus gives us the Great Commission, I know we translate it that we're to make disciples of all nations, but the literal translation is ethnics. We are to make disciples of all ethnics. So here we have Philip going to Samaria because of the great persecution, and he brings with him the gospel of Jesus Christ, smashing the cultural divide that existed for a thousand years. And the Holy Spirit is moving, and people are being saved, and people are being healed. And we're going to kind of bunny hop over some verses here, which is not my favorite thing to do. But Peter and John get the report of this back in Jerusalem. And they come down to Samaria, in a sense, to validate that the gospel has indeed gone forth and been received. This isn't a case of them being suspicious. More than they wanted to see if the gospel had indeed unified these two cultures. And skipping down to verse 25, look at the way they leave Samaria to go back to Jerusalem. When Peter and John had preached the word of the Lord in Samaria, they traveled back to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to even more villages of the Samaritans. Is this not a beautiful and powerful demonstration of the love of our God and the heart of our God for his people? But wait, there's more. Let's tie all three truths together using the story that comes next in chapter 8, verses 26 through 38. And it will, those three truths in that one story will lead us to truth number four. So once again, truth number one, God is sovereign over every situation. Truth number two, God is sovereign over every person. And truth number three, God wants all people to hear the gospel and he works history to that end. Let's pick it up in verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I understand unless someone guides me, unless someone teaches me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. 
Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Now, if you're keeping score at home, you'll likely notice that verse 37 is missing. I have zero time to dive into that now, but I do encourage you, if you'd like, go ahead and research why, and you'll find the harmless reason for its omission. But here is what I do want to focus on. God orchestrates a meeting between Philip, a Greek-speaking Jew, and an African, sexually altered, wealthy chief financial officer of Ethiopia. Now, if you desire to know more on the what and why of the eunuch, feel free to email me at Kirk at Trinity and I, no, I'm just kidding. A eunuch is a male who would have devoted his life in service and to the service of the king and the queen of a nation. But the king would have perceived that potentially as a threat. Uh, the male may be wanting to enter uh, service to the king to marry one of his, his daughters or to gain influence and gain power, maybe to gain wealth. And so to prevent against that threat, the king required the removal of reproductive organs. But not only did God orchestrate this meeting between these two people who would have never, ever crossed paths before. The Holy Spirit had completely set obedience in the heart of Philip and surrender in the heart of the eunuch. Philip listens to the Holy Spirit and responds, period. Go south to that road, done. Run up to that chariot, done. And Luke tells us that the eunuch was just returning from worship in Jerusalem. Turn yourself to now see this story from the eunuch's perspective. For him to get to Jerusalem from Ethiopia would have taken him no less than a month, and that's if he had a Tesla-style chariot. So this eunuch, after taking leave from his duties as CFO, in a nation full of false gods to worship, takes a dangerous trip over the course of several weeks to go to Jerusalem to worship. And when he got there, he would have been met at the temple with this message. And I'll abbreviate for posterity. Eunuchs are forbidden to worship here, enforced by the penalty of death. So here is this eunuch, rejected by religion, chased down by God. Philip literally runs up beside the chariot. 
He overhears the eunuch reading out loud from the Isaiah scroll. That's how people read in those days. They read out loud. And he's reading Isaiah chapter 53, which is all about Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53 is like the Mount Everest in the Old Testament of Jesus Christ, of prophecy about Jesus Christ. And no doubt the eunuch would have been resonating with the words that Isaiah uses to describe Jesus. Despised, rejected, acquainted with sorrows, afflicted, stricken. But there's something even deeper here. Remember, when scripture was originally written down, there were no chapters or verses labeled. We added those hundreds of years after Christ for convenience. If you look at the Isaiah scroll scroll, with an eye shot of what we call Isaiah chapter 53 is Isaiah chapter 56. And this is what it says. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Because of the very real commitment he made to the service of the king and queen, this eunuch couldn't have sons. This eunuch couldn't have daughters. His name dies with him. But the good news of Jesus invades the ugly news plastered on the wall of the religious temple. And we can almost hear the sadness in the heart of the eunuch as he asks Philip, and this is why I emphasized it when I read it, what prevents me? What prevents me from being baptized? What prevents me from loving this God? What prevents me from loving this Christ and him loving me? What prevents me from being part of this family? What prevents me from having these promises of God in my life? And because of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the answer is nothing. And no one. Behold the love of God, the love of the Father, totally sovereign over all events, totally sovereign over all people desires everyone to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and he works history to that end. He arranges this meeting. He prepares the hearts. He sends Philip. He converts the eunuch. And at that moment, all of heaven rejoices. Just like one day in history, God looked down from heaven, looked at you and looked at me and said to the Holy Spirit, go get him. He arranged for you to hear the good news of Jesus Christ, that Jesus lived perfectly for you, that he died the death that you and I deserved, and three days later he rose again in victory over Satan, sin, and death. And the Holy Spirit prepared your heart and my heart to receive that good news that an obedient Christian spoke, and he converted you and he converted me. And your eternal destiny changed, and so did mine. 
And that brings us to the last truth, truth number four. All of the ingredients that we just studied in Acts chapter 8 exist right now. Horizontal tragedy, political, racial, cultural divides, people searching, people seeking, people lonely, people hurting. Our God, the living God, the one who determined where you and I would live and when we would live there so that people might reach out and find him because he's not far from any one of us. And this is the final truth. Incredible opportunities exist right now for the spreading of the gospel of Jesus Christ to people that have never heard it before, if we take them. Christian brothers and sisters, is your heart, is my heart, open and obedient to the call of the Holy Spirit? Are we more focused on the government opening doors or God awakening hearts? Trinity, may we not be lulled into a convenient and comfortable Christianity which demands nothing from us and costs us nothing. The cross of Jesus Christ was anything but comfortable and convenient. The gospel cost Jesus everything. Let me close with these words from the letter of a young pastor in Zimbabwe. After he converted to Christianity, he wrote the following. I'm a part of the fellowship of the unashamed. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I'm a disciple of his and I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I'm done and finished with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tame vision, mundane talking, cheap living, and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right or first or tops or recognized or praised or rewarded. I live by faith, lean on his presence, walk by patience, lift by prayer, and labor by Holy Spirit power. My face is set. My gate is fast. My goal is heaven. My road may be narrow. My way may be tough. My companions few, but my guide is reliable, and my mission is clear. I will not be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice or hesitate in the presence of the adversary. I will not negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, or let up until I have stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, and preached up for the cause of Jesus Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus. I must give until I drop, preach all I know, and work until he comes. And when he does come for his own, he will have no problem recognizing me. My colors will be clear. This letter was found shortly after this young pastor was killed for his faith in Jesus Christ. 
God is sovereign over all events. God is sovereign over every person. And he wants everyone to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And these opportunities exist right now. Trinity, brothers and sisters, one day God will call each one of us home. May we be known as a people who will do anything and go anywhere to make known the name of Jesus Christ. Our very lives are not worth protecting at the expense of the good news that is certainly worth proclaiming. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we see in your word that you are sovereign over all events. We see in your word that you are sovereign over all people. We see in your word that you want all people to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And you work history to that end. Father, incredible opportunities exist for us right now to meet people exactly where they're at, hearts that you've prepared. Oh, Father, I pray that if there's somebody watching this right now that is hearing the gospel for the first time, that you convict and you convert by the power of your Holy Spirit, Father. Would they profess faith in your son Jesus for the forgiveness of their sin? Would you change their eternal destiny? And Father, for all of us Christians that are are watching and are hearing this word right now, would you give us the boldness to believe those truths and to act upon them? We beg you of this, Father. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.